Buddhist Geeks Discover the Emerging Face of Buddhism. Episode 280 The Naked Monk. This week, we're joined by author, teacher, and ex Buddhist monk Stephen Scatini to discuss alternatives to the guru disciple relationship and what it means to be an ex Buddhist. Buddhist Geeks is supported largely by the generosity of our listeners. If you like what we're doing, please consider making a one-time or monthly recurring donation by visiting BuddhistGeeks.com forward slash donate. Hello, Buddhist Geeks. This is Vincent Horn, and I'm joined today over Skype. I'm here today with Stephen Scatini. Stephen, thanks so much for taking the time to uh, chat with the Buddhist Geeks. Oh, it's a pleasure, Vincent. You write a blog called The Naked Monk, which can be found at nakedmonk.com. You've written a book called The Novice, which is a a story of of your experience being a Buddhist monk in the Tibetan tradition for, what was it, nine years that you were a monk? For eight years, yeah. For eight years. And then, um, I guess, describing then the experience of uh, leaving the monastic life and now you describe yourself as a secular ex-Buddhist. You're also teaching uh, mindfulness or mindful reflection, as you call it, teaching meditation. So we're going to go into some of these issues around what it means to be a Buddhist, what it means to be an ex-Buddhist, um, and explore some of the things that you've been kind of writing about and thinking about lately. Okay, sounds good. Cool. So I wanted to start with a, a blog post that you wrote recently um, in January. Uh, it was called Sick Love. And... In the post, you wrote about or used the recent scandal surrounding the Zen teacher Sasaki Roshi, um, which has now made it to the New York Times. It was on the front page a couple days ago. But you used it not as a way, it seemed like, to talk just about the scandal, but also to really to bring up points about institutions, um, the abuse of power, the guru-disciple relationship. And I was wondering if we could start with one of the points you made in that post, and, of course, you have a background uh, and a deep experience with this in the Tibetan tradition because there's a guru-disciple model there that's very strong. Uh, in the blog post, you asked the question, um, are we only now finally realizing that the guru-disciple relationship belongs to a different time and culture? Um, I was wondering if you could say a little bit more about uh, how you're looking at the guru-disciple relationship now, um, these, uh, all these years after probably being in a situation like that. Well, I've given it a lot of thought over the years. Um, it, it, it's a recurrent theme, and I, I've gotten myself into some into some arguments with old friends and uh, and with new enemies on this topic. It's something that people take very, very much to heart. In the Tibetan tradition, the guru-disciple relationship is um, it's a given. It's as simple as that. Uh, they talk about the three vehicles. The, the what they call the Hinayana and then the Mahayana and the Tantrayana. But in fact, everything in, in Buddhism is suffused with the Tantric vehicle. And the relationship with the teacher is, um, is very often a, a, a very deeply emotional relationship. Now, there are two ways of looking at this. If you go to the Tantric scriptures and examine exactly what they have to say about this relationship and how it should be formed and how careful the disciple should be in selecting the guru and how cautious he should be and how to maintain his discrimination while in the relationship, 
then it's actually quite feasible. And then there's reality. In reality, most people who, okay, not most people, most Westerners, the ones I want to talk about, who come to Buddhism, come to it as converts, which is very different from being born into a religion. And as converts, they have generally abandoned something or are looking for something. And that, that having given up or having sought something so uh, emotionally and viscerally makes them especially vulnerable. I know that's exactly what happened to me. It took me 20 years to realize why I'd become a Buddhist monk in the first place and why I became a Buddhist in the first place. And it was very hard for me to swallow because it wasn't very complimentary. But I, I became a Buddhist because I wanted to belong. I needed to belong to something nice and big and substantial and welcoming and loving that accepted me. And the Tibetans are really, really good at that. So in that context, when you come into a guru relationship in that situation, and especially when these people come from the other side of the planet, they come from a completely different culture. It's a 2,600-year-old massive monolith of a culture which, which must be filled with wisdom and couldn't possibly be wrong and is too profound to question, then you basically become very meek in your approach to it. You become meek in your approach to the teachers. And that's when, um, that's when a lot of bad things start to happen. And I'm not just talking about the extreme edge, like what happened with Sasaki Roshi. It doesn't have to be sexual abuse or physical abuse or mental abuse even. It can be very loving. A teacher can welcome you in and accept that attitude in you and encourage that attitude in you. And that, to me, is totally contrary to the spirit of what the Buddha taught. To me, he was teaching self-reliance. And it's okay to come with, a, with, with an attitude of dependence, but the teacher's job, like a parent's job, is to wean you of dependence and send you back into the world on your own two feet. So that's the danger that I really wanted to address in this article. And I, I just used the Sasaki Roshi scandal as a segue to that. Okay, and, and I'm sort of reading between the lines here, but I imagine then that you kind of went through your own experience of some level of dependency on, the, on a teacher or on the tradition and then probably had to go through some sort of uh, breaking, breaking up with that. Like, what, what was that like? No, no, my, my, my experience was different um, and also not unusual at all. Um, I thought I was very unique at the time in not feeling that sense of connection to one particular guru. I, I had one teacher who I was extremely fond of, Lama Tupton Yeshe, um, but I didn't see much of him. I ended up studying with Geshe Rampton and that relationship for me was uh, very uh, practical. It was very much the sort of relationship I would have had with a, with a university professor here in the West. Um, he, he, was, he was a terrific teacher in many ways, and, and I'm very grateful to him, but I didn't have that sense of devotion. Now, because I didn't have that sense of devotion to him, and because I also entered into, uh, I'm putting my little fingers up here now, tantric relationships with other Tibetan teachers, uh, and I didn't have that sense of devotion I felt that uh, I was defective in some way, that something was wrong or I was missing out somewhere. 
And I've heard this recently as people come to me and they ask me questions, they want to know what I'm doing, but they're talking about various things. And they say, but I don't have a teacher. I haven't got a teacher yet. As if it's an important staging post on the, on the path to enlightenment. Um, so it's because I didn't have that close relationship that it was a problem for me. But I also knew people who did have those sorts of close relationships or imagined they did and got themselves into trouble with it and consequently withdrew. And I also know others who, who had that sort of relationship and are still extremely happy with it in retrospect, even after 30 or, or more years. Okay, interesting. I'm, I'm curious then, how are you looking at the function and role of teacher? What, what role do you see that playing in a healthy way in this kind of time and culture? Well, I think the, 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 the guru-disciple relationship that we see in, in Tibetan Buddhism and, and presumably also in Zen Buddhism, although I'm not really very familiar with that, um, is probably analogous to the master-apprentice relationship in the Middle Ages. And again, we're talking about a, a medieval culture, not a modern culture. Today, we... Um, we tend to speak to each other as peers. And we, we expect, I mean, democracy is not just a political way of organizing, it's also a mindset. And we really have in the West, that, that that's an integral part of the way we see and think, we can't help it. So in order to enter into a, a, a medieval relationship, whether you call a guru disciple or master apprentice, you sort of have to you have to twist your perceptions a bit. And that doesn't always go very smoothly, let's say. I'm not sure if I answered your question there, Vincent. Yeah, so I mean, so I get the analogy there um, between the kind of the apprentice model in the West and then this uh, kind of guru model. I'm curious then what what is a kind of modern model or models that make sense to you? Like, what kind of model for relating to other people and learning from other people uh, makes sense in the modern context? Like, what, like, like how do you work with uh, people, for instance? I mean, you must have a particular model that you're using to... Because I know you do one-on-one -on -one work with people on Skype and that you also are teaching various kinds of material. Well, I, I think the model is a university professor or maybe something a little more um, casual, maybe a high school teacher or maybe a personal tutor. But the point is that I think it's necessary that there should be a peer-to-peer -peer, um, content in that relationship. If I, if I sign up for a course in astrophysics, then I go with faith that the teacher knows more than I do, because I'm obviously not going to know it until I've reached the end of the course. Right. Uh, it may be years, probably will be years before I'm in a position to really question him. So th there is a, a, a faith is, is appropriate, a sort of belief, you know, and a suspension of disbelief. But it has to be very specific. I mean, I suspend my disbelief with him when it comes to astrophysics. If I have trouble in my relationship at home, I'm not going to ask him and expect him to give me an infallible answer on that. Right. And as a young monk, when I used to translate for, for my teacher, uh, for personal interviews, people would come and they would ask exactly those sort of questions. And you see it today if you see the way people ask questions of the Dalai Lama. You know, they ask him questions on, on topics of which he, he has no knowledge and they expect him to give 
very wise and deep answers, and that, it's not reasonable. Yeah, that, I mean, it, what you're pointing out, it seems like there is this bigger issue because when we talk about astrophysics or any other discipline, it's pretty clear what the scope of that field of knowledge is, and it's yeah. pretty clear that you know when you've mastered it, when you understand certain concepts, or you, you know, you could even take tests in, in some ways and show your kind of understanding of it. But with Buddhism, um, there seem to be so many different facets that different Buddhist approaches cover, you know, and they, you know, sometimes they split into various kinds of trainings, you know, like the three trainings model or the eightfold path. And it's like, this stuff seems to cover like all kinds of different skill sets, like, like, you know, that just the term ethics or morality. I mean, that just covers so many different kinds of things that I can see why there is often confusion about expecting certain kinds of knowledge from a teacher. And I always appreciate when teachers kind of limit the scope and say this is this is what I know and this is what I teach and this is what I'm good at and then the rest of the stuff I'm not really you really shouldn't come to me for this yeah I think I think you have to do that I think that's a question of integrity I think any any serious student who's looking for a for a a a decent teacher should be holding up to that standard because I mean you hear people you see arguments about Buddhism all the time Buddhism is a philosophy no it's not it's a religion no god it's not it's a way of life I mean, and these are all sort of true. Buddhism is whatever the heck you want it to be, you know. You can turn it into a deep philosophical system which will, which will challenge you mentally and intellectually for the rest of the life and won't change one single perception in your mind either. Or it can be a practice which, which completely transforms your life and makes you into a very simple person. I mean, it, it's up to you what you want to do with it. But yeah, when you're studying it, your teacher should be able to tell you what Buddhism is for him or her. Okay, great. Okay, great. And, you know, that's a great segue, I think, to this next question, which is, you know, you describe yourself um, as an ex-Buddhist. And I was curious, in your mind, what you've seen are the, some of the reasons that people choose to be a Buddhist. And part of the reason I'm curious about this is, like, um, it's an ongoing question for most people that engage with this material that are in a modern context, you know, am I a Buddhist? Should I be a Buddhist? You know, the, the religious studies, you know, um, scholarship on this is pretty clear that a lot of convert Buddhists don't necessarily even identify as Buddhists. You know, they, they might have Buddhist books they're reading, but not everyone is sort of saying, yes, I'm a Buddhist. I'm curious, why do you think people uh, do choose to identify with that, with that particular uh, identity? Well, um, I think for the same reason that we tend to identify with anything, it's because we want to belong. We want to feel part of something bigger than us. Uh, we want to feel secure. Uh, we want to feel that we, we have, if we don't have the answers ourselves, that we have access to the answers or we have resources which will at least promise to deliver the answers. And I think these, these are all, this is exactly what the Buddha was talking about. Well, I'll put it this way. This is the part that the Buddha spoke about that interests me the most, is this notion of hanging on to some sort of sense of security or um, ability to explain the world, explain our existence, to explain the inexplicable, basically, and it's a deep fear. It's a, it's a deep insecurity that we all have, and it drives us into the arms of religion. 
And in extreme cases, it makes us fanatical. Um, but not only religion, it can drive us into the arms of, of, you know, all sorts of things, of punk rock or of uh, born-again Christianity or, or a new political movement. People identify with all sorts of things, and from that they get a sense of meaning and purpose. That is the emotional underpinning. Now, there, there are rationalizations on top of that. Well, I chose Buddhism because it's very intelligent and it's logical and it's scientific, and that is sort of true, but it's not the whole story. There is always an emotional underlay to these things. And I think the purpose of, um, for me, the purpose of mindful practice is to, is to become aware of our underlying emotional motivations. That's the most important aspect of mindfulness for me. And I'm curious if, um, if one does that and is aware of the emotional kind of the motivations, etc., does that leave someone then in your mind as not identifying with certain uh, groups or philosophies or kind of ways of making meaning? Or? Well, no. Okay, no, good. I think it loosens that identification. It shakes it up a little bit in a healthy way. I mean, it, it reminds us that it's impermanent, that it's transitory, that it changes constantly. And I call myself a, a, an ex-Buddhist, as you say, um, for a couple of reasons. Because I, I, I guess at first, because I wanted to shake this sense of having to belong. I wanted to loosen that up in myself. Um, also, because I don't, I don't feel a sense of allegiance to any particular Buddhist group or organization. Um, Actually, I gave a talk uh, a couple of months ago uh, to, the, to some students at the University of Toronto, and one of them said, um, are you really an ex-Buddhist? And I, I found myself saying, well, I suppose I could call myself a Buddhist. It's just a label, isn't it? Yeah, I was, um, was going to ask, like, given that what you said about you know, the kind of impermanence of these identities, like if, if you think maybe one day the ex-Buddhist thing will change. Well, maybe it will. I, I don't really see any any compulsion to become a Buddhist. And by the way, for your listeners, just just so they know, the ex-Buddhist is ex, yes, as opposed to Glenn Wallace's ex-Buddhist, which is a rather complicated thing. Anyway, <laughs> I I I don't think uh, I don't really see myself needing to identify with anything. Who knows? On my deathbed, I might return to to the arms of Jesus, you know, and <laughs> make sure that I can get into heaven at the last moment. <laughs> but I sort of doubt it. <laughs> I wrote a blog a, a few months ago um, describing myself as a Catholic. Mm -hmm. I am a Catholic because that's the way I was raised. That's what I was born into, and I disclaim all that. I don't believe in any of that. Um, I never, Christianity never worked for me as a belief system. I tried very hard to be a good Catholic, but my sensibilities are Catholic. Um, I can, my, my head can still be, or my heart can still be turned by, by a Christmas carol. I feel things in a certain way which other Catholics can identify with. Mm -hmm. the, the, again, there's this emotional underpinning. So I don't identify with it consciously or intellectually, but I recognize that, that's, that the, there's a stratum of me which, is, which can be described in those terms. Mm. This whole issue of a kind of identifying with and, and then also I think connected with that practicing because 
it seems like, in my, at least in my experience, all of the things that I've really gone deeply into, that I've really practiced, that I've really, I've really tried to understand as deeply as I could, I had to kind of step into them for a while. And like you said, suspend the disbelief, um, you know, whether it was with Buddhist meditation or even with like athletics or, or, or any other pursuit that, that there really takes this sort of uh, kind of going all in-ness that's required to actually plunge the depths of what that particular approach or system or model uh, has to offer. And one thing, I, one danger I see in the modern world, since there are so many different approaches that one could pursue, even within the category of contemplation and then even further into the category of Buddhism, um, one of the challenges I've seen is that because there's so many choices and because this kind of general idea, people can have this sort of sense that I don't want to be identified with anything, I don't want to be a joiner, then I've seen a lot of, you know, kind of the cafeteria model where you kind of go in around and you, you kind of try a little bit of this and a little bit of that, but you never really give yourself fully to something so that you can actually see what it's pointing to. Um, that there's a danger also on that side of the spectrum you know, the danger you're talking about, which I hear and also see quite clearly, is going into something and then not being able to come back out. You know, basically, yeah. basically having to look at the world through that particular model or that lens for the rest of your life. Um, and going so deeply into it that, like, at a certain point, it makes no sense that you'd ever come out. Because, like, look how, how much experience and knowledge and prestige you have within this particular approach. Um, yeah. But then this opposite danger, you know, of, of not really ever tasting the depth that these different approaches offer. What, how, do you, how are you thinking about that now, these days? Well, uh, yeah, that, that, that's a very, very real spectrum. Um, and I think, uh, you know, the seals, the, the, the Buddhists, the Buddha's seals, all things are impermanent. All compounded phenomena are, are unsatisfactory. And stopping is peaceful. Or nirvana is peace, if you want to use a nice fancy word. But nirvana just means stopping. I, I think these are very, very important. I think that's what makes you a Buddhist, actually, if you think in those terms and repeatedly apply that that reflection to, to every situation that you come into, especially in terms of your own so-called spiritual path and your own sense of direction. I think you have to keep reminding yourself that everything is constantly changing. You cannot rely on what today, what, what you relied on yesterday, because it's just not the same, and you're not the same, and your perceptions are not the same. So it's, this is the challenge of, of Buddhism and of mindfulness, is to keep a fresh perspective on things. And the problem, again, returning to that, that blog I wrote about, um, about Sasaki Roshi, uh, the problem is compounded when you uh, uh, suspending disbelief. The problem is compounded when you enter a community and you feel safe and secure in that community, and that community becomes your whole world, which for many people in my generation is exactly what happened. And for many uh, residential communities in the West, which exist today, that's still an issue. People get stuck because by asking awkward questions, you alienate yourself from your friend, basically your friends and family, from, from your intimates. Uh, and whether that includes a guru or not, it's an extremely difficult thing to do. So this is not just a psychological problem, it's also a social problem. And 
It's something that requires, again, you have to work very consistently on uh, some sense of self-reliance. The most important, most overlooked important quality in Buddhism is discernment, I think. You hear less talk of that than I think you should hear. I think discernment is extremely important. And on the masthead of my website, I say, uh, expose yourself to doubt. And if you, even today, in, in a lot of translations, doubt is cast as a bad thing in Buddhism. You're not supposed, but doubt is a terrible thing. Indecision is a bad thing, but doubt is not a bad thing. You should constantly doubt yourself. I think you, what, you know, one thing you cannot trust is your own judgment. You have to keep revisiting it again and again and again. This, to me, is the key to what the Buddha taught. If you want to rely on your own experience, you have to keep casting out your preconceptions and your, your prejudices in order to see what is actually there and separate the, the, the mental image that you have about how you really want things to be or wish they were or afraid they might be and get down to, the, to, to reality. It's hard work, man. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, one way that I've been thinking about this, this very issue that you're talking about of what can we rely on as we go into this path of practice or, or a particular contemplative path of practice, whether it's Buddhism or not? On the one hand, it seems like, like you're saying, we have ourselves to rely on, obviously. And then we also often have people that seem to know more about the things we want to learn. You know, we could call them teachers or mentors or guides or whatever you want to call that that category. And then we also have our peers. You know, we have people that are also doing something similar. You mentioned communities and some of the, the social issues that come with communities. It seems like in my mind, you know, if we were to look at the three main places that we tend to look for discernment, you know, for, from ourselves, from, from experts or, or mentors and from, from our peers, you know, one of the things I've seen in the secular, kind of the secular Buddhist movement, uh, and I've asked uh, Ted Meissner this recently, I said, you know, why refer back to the Buddha at all? Uh, you know, in a certain way, uh, you know, the Buddha's not around. He can't, uh, <laughs> he can't really argue with us, so we can basically sort of project any, anything we want onto him and we can find textual basis for it. And I, I guess my reason for asking this is, you know, the, has the Buddha, the historical figure, you know, in a certain way come to stand in for the teacher or the expert role that we don't really want to deal with uh, kind of in real life, like we've been disappointed or disillusioned by enough teachers, then why not just go back to the original teacher and kind of use him as our sounding board? Um, but I was wondering, you know, is it, is it possible, or do you ever see a problem with going back to the Buddha as a source of a kind of contemplative authority or, or a source of uh, even wisdom? Um, do you see that as being problematic in, in any way? And, and I'm just curious how you look at that, because you mentioned the Buddha quite a, quite a few times. Wow, that's quite a question. Well, first of all, yes, it is enormously problematic. Um, first of all, because we don't know if there is ever such a human being as the Buddha. Um, do people use him as a stand when teachers become obviously fallible? Uh, yeah, I'm sure they do, but that's certainly not the whole story. There's much more to it than that. Um, do we, ref do we need to refer to a historical figure? Well, I don't know. I mean, you know, if you're a Buddhist, you've got to ask yourself what Buddhism is. And, and in order to define that, I mean, 
let's face it, Buddhism was named after the supposed man who's called a Buddha, who's called Buddha. Now, whether he's a historical composite, um, which a lot of scholars are beginning to argue now, or some scholars are beginning to argue, which is quite possible, um, he still has to be painted with with tremendous consistency, some sort of consistency, which enables people to follow him for 2,600 years. And now you're saying, well, maybe we don't need to follow him at all. I mean, he's just a historical figure who isn't here, who maybe isn't even a historical figure. Uh, what we need to do is take these practices and put them to the test. It's very, for me and for my generation, okay, I'm going to read you something. All right. Something which I found extremely interesting from David Chapman. Okay. Who I, I, I like his stuff very much. He's, um, he's a very creative Buddhist thinker. He's not afraid of being creative and sticking his neck out. I, I appreciate that tremendously. He says, Anyone born in a modern country after 1970 has never seen an intact cultural tradition, unless they've traveled to a poor country that retains one. Those under 40 have never seen a religious system that is not falling apart at its, uh, at its edges. In other words, he's drawing this historical um, watershed between the period of intact cultural traditions and complete fragmentation, which is what modern society seems to be turning into. Yes. Um, I think in that context, you know, when you look at the, the, the notion of cherry picking, I think everybody must have heard of cherry picking. Mm -hmm. It's what people um, are accused of who don't stick to one tradition and um, sink their teeth into it. Um, who take a little bit of Zen Buddhism and a little bit of uh, Mother Teresa and a little bit of Thich Nhat Hanh and so on. And a lot of people see a problem with that because it's you, you build a system of belief based on what is comfortable for you. And I think that is a problem because a lot of spiritual traditions, um, I think all serious spiritual spiritual traditions um, have as one of their methodologies confronting you with difficult situations, confronting you with impossible to believe things. Um, you know, speaking of whom, Mother Teresa, who, you know, whether you, whether you like what she did or not, she appeared to be a model of faith. And yet, when her diary was opened a few years ago, it was discovered that she had deep doubts about the existence of God. Yep. Um, and I think that that struggle is very much a part of, of, of a spiritual path. And I, I think that's, that's very important. And I don't think you can really get that struggle unless you engage with your tradition as something very tangible and very coherent. Okay, and, and do you feel like then having um, like a figure like the Buddha is something that, that kind of lends a coherency to it? Well, not for everybody. For me, the, the story of the Buddha is extremely... Um, I've, always, I've always taken a great um, fascination in it, in some ways even more than some of the things he said, because I think people teach more and we learn more uh, through role modeling than through ideas in many cases. Mm. Um, 
And I was always fascinated in the man and his life and his courage and his determination and his iconoclasm. And, you know, these are all human qualities. And that's what made me think, wow, you know what, I can follow this man. Jesus, Jesus, he was the son of God. It's sort of hard for me to follow him. But Buddha was a flawed man with deep existential doubts. And I can relate to that. And that was, that was a great help to me. Well, it wasn't a help. It was actually why I got into this in the first place, because, because I related to him personally. And I'm sure that's not the only way in which you can come to Buddhism. Like I said before, there are a million different motivations. Yes. Um, but, yeah, I think to me, he, he drew together uh, all those different aspects of what Buddhism seems to be into a single focus which enabled me to, to give it some coherence and, and to relate to it in that way. And when I realized that I didn't even know if he existed or not, um, it didn't matter to me. Because the myth is bigger than the man. And the myth is what we actually grapple with. And the myth is a mental construct in any case. So, of course, I mean, I'm dealing with something that's, that's in my mind. It's my own perception of Buddhism. And that's all we all do. I mean, we all have our own perception of Buddhism. It's not something out there which is concrete. I, th I just find this whole exploration so interesting, in part because I, I always appreciated the story of the Buddha and the myth uh, that, you, that you mentioned, but I always found it much more inspiring to meet people who would seem to really get something from putting, putting various things into practice. And um, in, in that sense, I never really... Although I studied some of the, you know, the Theravada suttas, and I, I went to school and studied comparative religion, which is mostly Buddhism, um, I, I, I never really felt like uh, I was following Buddhism per se, as much as following like the the kind of understanding that had arisen for people, many of whom had spent time in this Buddhist kind of stream of thought. Another thing that comes to mind is Shinzen Young. Um, when at the first Buddhist Geese conference, he, he gave an interesting uh, comparison. He said, you know, one way we can think of the Buddha is as a kind of uh, prophet or as a kind of religious figure, you know, someone who started a religion. Another way to think of him is as a, um, as a kind of scientist of the mind. And he kind of pointed out, you know, with, with respect to something like science, we don't call physics, you know, we don't call uh, cosmology Galileoism you know, or Copernicanism, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's cosmology's well-defined as like the study of celestial bodies. Um, but with Buddhism, uh, it, again, and it goes back to this issue we were talking about before, it doesn't seem to be really clearly exactly one thing. Now, some people say it is a science of the mind and some people say it is about meditation, but then plenty of other people disagree with that understanding. Oh, yeah. Of it. Um, yeah. So anyway, just this whole topic is really fascinating. Like who is the Buddha? You know, how does he fit into our understanding of Buddhism? Um, how many different kinds of understandings of Buddhisms are out there? You know, it's just, it, like you said, the fragmentation is really, it's really incredible, even with something like this, which, which up until, you know, the past 100 or 200 years was, you know, several fairly self-contained systems. I think your, your attitude towards, or your, what, what has drawn you to Buddhism in looking to, to people who've accomplished something with it in their life, I think that's, that's not unusual at all. Um, I, I think that's extremely pragmatic approach. I mean, to, to, to deal with people that you can see and touch and, and talk to and, and probe, um, I think that's a fantastic 
uh, way to evaluate whatever Buddhism it is you're approaching. And then the notion of what Buddhism is. Uh, and in fact, what this brings up for me is another thing. What I like to blog about, what I like to write about is, is misconceptions or my, my, what I perceive as misconceptions. And um, one of them, especially coming from the Tibetan tradition and especially coming from the Gelugpa tradition, which is based on the teachings of Tsongkhapa, who wrote The Stages of the Path, mm-hmm. and also called the, the gradual path to enlightenment or the graded path to enlightenment, who spelled the path out in such excruciating, minute detail so that each step of the path was predefined and you knew where you were going. I mean, I... I have completely rejected that um, vision of the path. To me, the path is something that each of us creates. It's an act of creativity. And we have to, do, we have to find the intuitive ability to relate to a teacher and the creative ability to interpret the teachings or whatever it is we find Buddhism to be in a way which moves us forward. Um, I, I think that's not simply important. I think that's the point. Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference, hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and Pragmatic Dharma Provocateur Daniel Ingram, as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com slash conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.